0: Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue our study of chapter 5 and and, uh, particularly of the day of the Lord. Paul has begun back in chapter 4 verse 13 and he has begun to speak of future events, things that are to come and so as he, he is addressing these issues and we often in the church have shied away from teaching these texts and we've shied away from teaching these texts and we've shied away even from end time events because we are afraid of controversy we are afraid that it's divisive within the church and so we have said well we we'll, we we'll, we just won't go there because it causes division Others have said, well, why even go there at all? Because it's so confusing, we can never figure it out. After all, there's so many opinions, it must be just impossible to figure out. To which I would actually say, I think that's a statement of lack of faith. Because I think the word of God is clear. I think if we interpret it and we read it straightforward, I think we can get most of it. So I don't think that we have to be afraid of it. Others have said, well, it's just really not that important. It's really not important, right? It's a secondary doctrine, maybe even a third-class doctrine. We put it way back there in the back closet, because really, what does it have to do with me now? What, is, what, what do I have to do with me? Because after all, I've got to go save the lost. What difference does it make? And that, to that I would reply a lot. The fact is depending on which passages you want to include and what you want to talk about, somewhere between 25 to 30% of your Bible is to do with prophecy. So I expect that God expects us to understand it. And if you put that much into it, then it's also profitable. And we're going to see today again that end times events and things in the future are extremely practical for us today. Because it does affect how you live. Because as we look at the world and we see a world that seems to be out of control and a world that just just seems to be going off the cliff, there can be a tendency for us to worry. There can be a tendency for us, maybe to be like the Thessalonians, to start wondering what's going on. And we become fearful and we become hesitant and we're not sure. But if we, can, if we understand the future and we understand what the Bible says, then everything that we see going on has a context. We don't have to rest just strictly on the sovereignty of God, though that should be enough, but we can actually see that God has some things that he says will take place. And there are some things that we know we won't go through. And there's some things that we will that will we will go through, and therefore we can now rest in where we're at. And so we're going to find again that this is very, very practical for the believer. So having said all of that, why don't we look at our Bibles and our text really this morning, verses 4 to 8, verses 4 to 8. But again, I want to read verses 1 to 11, because we're actually in this section uh, on the day of the Lord. And in this section, uh, we're not going to go quite there, I have more to say. He he is making a comparison between believers and unbelievers. And he's making a contrast as to what's going to take place for them. There are some who are going to go through the day of the Lord and God's judgment, and there's a group that's not. And so as he comes through verses 1 to 3, we saw that. And then as we come through this next section... Again, we're going to see the marks of a believer, and we're going to see really three things that take place. We're going to look at the believer, and we're going to see that he's different by nature, he's different by conduct, and ultimately, he's going to be different by destination. So you can, you're going to see those three events that take place. Now, we're only going to get to two of them today. We're going to get to the first two, but we're going to see that general outline that... Those who are marked by being of the light, as Paul calls them, will ultimately not go through the day of the Lord because of their character and because of their conduct and ultimately because of their destiny. All right, let's start in verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know... full well that the day of the Lord will not come that the that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Excuse me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truths of this word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. And so I pray that as we go through this, that he will be the one instructing us and that we will hear from him. And so I pray that you will prepare our hearts to hear. I pray that these truths will strike us. And that we will be encouraged and challenged here this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Now we've been dealing with the day of the Lord. And we've, we really started back in chapter 14, as I said, about dealing about future events and, and the rapture and the return of Christ for his own and the gathering together. And the Thessalonians were afraid that those who had died in Christ, those who had, were believers who died already were going to be second-class citizens. They were afraid they were going to miss out in the events of Christ's return. And they are reassured by Paul that actually they won't. In fact, Paul says, I'm giving you new revelation because you haven't heard this before. And I'm going to give it to you to make sure you know that they will have all the privileges that we will. And therefore comfort yourselves. And then it seems like they had concerns about the day of the Lord and they weren't sure when it was going to come. And so they were, uh, they were stirred up a little bit about the day of the Lord and they wanted to know more about it. And they, so they were, again, agitated, not knowing when it would take place and, and everything. And Paul here then in, says to them, actually, this is something that you already know. I'm, and in, in a sense, there's a, A correction here. He says, "I. This is something that you already know. You've already already aware of this. I don't have to write to you anything more." And so last week, as we went through this first three verses, we really saw that there was a testimony already to the day of the Lord. In fact, they had the Old Testament scriptures, they probably had some of the oral teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul had taught them about the day of the Lord. This was not new. This is something that had already been taught, that the day of the Lord was truly coming, that it was a true event. And then in verse 2, He reminded them, again, listen, you know this, that the day of the Lord is not something that you can know when it's coming. This isn't something you can mark on your calendar and put a date on it. It's going to come unexpectedly. It will come like a thief in the night. You will not know when it's coming. And then thirdly, we saw that the, the target of the day of the Lord. And and we talked about the idea that the day of the Lord is a time of blessing and a time of judgment. And the judgment part is for unbelievers. And he says that judgment will come upon them when they're saying peace and safety. In other words, unbelievers are headed for this. They're the ones who are going to be under the judgment of God. But now as he comes to to verse 4, he puts this strong conjunction here, but, and he says, but there's going to be a contrast. And we already saw that contrast between the you in verse 1 and the they in in verse 3. And now he goes and he says, but you, and again, there's that contrast, you, you are different from those who are going to be swallowed up by a thief in the night by the day of the Lord and its judgment. He says, but you are different. And so as he comes here, he's now going to go as in verses four to eight, he's going to give us really a glimpse. And he says, the reason you don't have to worry about being in the day of the Lord, the reason that you don't have to worry about the judgment of the day of the Lord is for two reasons. He's going to say, well, I'm going to step one back. What I want you to notice in this text is this. Now, how many of you went through the joy on Thursday night of the grammar that we took on Thursday night? And I know you guys were so delighted and that when, I, when we stopped, you just were crying for more. But here, we're going, to, we're going to take what we learned on Thursday night and we're going to see it right in this passage. We talked about the indicative and the imperative. And we said that the indicative is simply stating facts. It's, it's stating things as they are. It's stating reality. And then we talked about the imperative. In other words, here's a call to do something. And we're going to see this pattern in our, in our passage here today. He's go, and this is why we talk about doctrine being practical. He's going to give you some information and he's going to tell you about who you are. He's going to talk about your character as a believer. He does that in verses 5 and 6. For you are sons of light and sons of dark, we are not of night nor of darkness. And then in verse six, he says, so then let us. And now he's going to start giving you some exhortations as what to do with the information. And so here is that, here is that, here's some information, this is what you do with it. And so we see this pattern right here in our passage. We didn't even have to wait a week. It's right here. And Paul. this is common in Paul's teaching. Here's, here's the doctrine Here's what you do with it. And so he's going to do that with us this morning. And so as we look at this passage, we're simply going to see that we as believers will not participate in the day of the Lord because (laughs) because we are called to remember our character. He says, look at your character. Look at who you are. And then he says, not only that, but look at your conduct. In other words, the conduct that you're called to do separates you from being within the day of the Lord. And so he's, he, and in essence, one will build on the other, but both of these are characteristics of those who what, will not be in the day of the Lord. Now he says, first of all, as, as, he, as he begins... In verse 4, he begins this, this area dealing with our character. In other words, believers, because of who you are, you will not be in the day of the Lord. You will not participate in it. Not in the judgment part. So he says, but you, and we talked about that, in contrast to those who are unbelievers, those who are caught up, by the day of the Lord, who are surprised by it, those who are in spiritual darkness. He says, but you brethren. And again, he uses that there's, there, again to identify them as those who are what in the family of God and, and maybe even strengthen the contrast. But you brethren, you are who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You who are believers. You brethren, he says are not in darkness that the day would overtake you now he says here you are in dark you are not in darkness now what he's not saying is that for the believer it, there's never nighttime again he doesn't say that it does you do not get it does not get physically dark he's talking here about spiritual darkness those who are under the domain of Satan, those who are blinded by sin. He's referring to the unbeliever and the godless. We would say that sin has penetrated their hearts and minds, blinding them to spiritual realities and making them oblivious to impending judgment. In fact, we would say spiritual darkness is the habitual sphere in which the man of the world lives. In other words, that's, that's the sphere of where they live. They live in spiritual darkness, opposed to God, blind to spiritual realities, under the power of Satan. But the missionaries record the happy fact that the, what, that the believers, the Thessalonians, and therefore all believers, are not in that darkness. They are not in that darkness. They have been spiritually enlightened. They have passed out of darkness and ignorance and unbelief into the light of the glorious truth of Christ. Paul says this in Colossians 1.13, that we have been what? Rescued from the domain of darkness and transformed, transferred into the kingdom of of his beloved son. We are no longer in spiritual darkness. We are no longer spiritually blind, but we have been rescued and saved from that. No longer do we have to look for the consequences of being in the darkness. No longer will the day of the Lord overcome us like a thief. We will no longer have to face those consequences. Now, just to be clear, the day that he's talking about here is the day of the Lord. He says, the day you will not be overcome by the day. You will not be overcome by the day of the Lord. That time of destruction will not fall upon the believer. The believer has nothing to fear. They will not be surprised for it, by it. It will not catch them like a thief. And he says, it won't catch you, not only because you are no longer in the realm of darkness, but he really goes on and he says, the reason you're not going to be participating in the day of the Lord is because of your character. In other words, you have been transformed. He says, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. So he goes on to explain why, why are you in the realm of lightness? Why? Why? What what how can I say that the day of the Lord won't come upon you? He says for you and again he makes that contra he keeps pushing that that little pronoun you. You you in contrast to they, in contrast to those who will overcome. He says you all. Now that's an important little word. He doesn't say some of you. He says, all of you. In other words, all believers. This is for all believers. This is characteristic of them all. There's no exceptions to this. Okay? There's not some that are then, some that might be. He says, all are sons of light and sons of day. And, it's, it, and again, you, you have to realize how comforting this must be. Because he doesn't say the super-Christian, right? He doesn't say those without fault. He doesn't say those who serve beyond degree. He says this is even for the weakest Christian with many faults. In other words, you're all identified. Once you are a believer, this is you. Sometimes we get discouraged and sometimes we think, how can it be? And yet, if we're truly sons of the day, sons of the, of, the, of, of the light, it's for all of us. It's based upon not, now listen to this, it's not based upon our merit. It's based upon our nature and our relationship with God. Again, he says, the sons of light, that's a Hebrew formula describing the nature of belonging to life. He says, in other words, the sons belong to the light, the light owns them. Now, it's interesting because this term was used very often in the first century of those, and it was used to identify someone and and their character. In other words, when you are born, you often have the characteristics of your parents. And so in the first century, when they said you were a son of Abraham, that meant something. Son of the kingdom, right? Son son of Isaac. And so there was the identification that you were now like your parent. Jesus said he was the, they got angry at Jesus because he said he was what? God was his father, making him what? God, right? So there's a, there's a characteristic here. Remember Jesus with the sons of Zebedee? He called them what? Sons of thunder, why? They were controlled by anger, weren't they? They were fiery people. And so he says here, recognize that you now are now what? Sons by nature of light. In other words, light now controls you. It is the thing that is over top of you. You've been given a new nature. You are now in the light of the Lord, according to Ephesians 5.8. You've passed from a life in the sphere of darkness into the realm of light. And now you possess the qualities of enlightened people. You are different. You have a new nature. You are the children of light, the true children of God. Believers now live in the light and move forward to the day when they will become partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1.12. Jesus used this analogy in John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a change. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God said, light shall shine out of darkness. For God said, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We have been taken from dark spiritual darkness to spiritual light. We now are those who are demonstrated to be light. Again, this emphasis, notice this. He does not say we need to become light. He doesn't say by your behavior, if you do what's right, if you obey, you will be light. He says you are light. And that's what he's saying here. You are sons of the light. You are by nature. You are spiritually alive, set apart for God, controlled by him. You are his. Then he says further, you are a son of the day. Really doubling the idiom to produce e- emphasis you are no you now walk in day you no longer walk in nighttime you no longer walk walk in spiritual darkness in the night but you walk in the day and then he follows this statement up with this with this negative statement he says but you are He says, for you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. He wants to emphasize the difference. You're not of the night. You're not of darkness. You are no longer walking like that. You are no longer characterized by that. You have been taken out of it and put into light. You are no longer willfully ignorant of God. You no longer are under a certain judgment You are no longer in rebellion against him. You are no longer incapable of seeing God for who he is. And in essence, again, he draws the lines sharply. There's no middle ground to be contemplated. In Christianity, you are either in or you're out. You don't get to dabble in other religions and take Christianity for your safety blanket. You're either in or you're out. You are either in light or you are in darkness. Again, Paul says we here. He includes he includes himself, he includes Timothy, all those who are writing with him. We all are in the same boat. Paul is not above those he writes to, he is in the same boat. He is a son of, of day, son of the light, not in darkness. In essence, Paul says, I'm willing to go in the same spot that I'm calling you to. So why does it matter so much? Why does it matter so much that we are sons of the day, sons of the light? Well, Paul was clear in verse 3 that those in the darkness will be what? Overtaken by the day of the Lord. He will come like a thief in the night. Paul says, because of who you are, in other words, because of your nature, because of your character, you don't have to worry about being in the, na- in, the, in the day of the Lord. You are no longer in a place where there's judgment. You are no longer in a place where there is what? Condemnation. Again, Paul said earlier in chapter 1 verse 10, And we wait for his son from heaven who has raised whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who what? Rescues us from the wrath to come. In other words, you have been taken out of darkness and put into light, and now you are in the in a place by your nature and the realm that you walk, there's no longer judgment. Wrath has been taken off of you. He says it again in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus. And so Paul says, listen, remember who you are. Remember your character. Look who you are. You are out of the realm of darkness. You are now have a new nature. Your character is changed. And because of that, you will never have to face the wrath of God. It's not what you do. It's not who you are. It's not the accomplishments that will save you and deliver you. It's this character. It's this nature that's been given to you that ensures that the day of the Lord and its judgment will not come upon you. You are a new creation. There's old things that passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is gone. And so he says, if you recognize your nature, your character, who you are, you recognize that you can't be part of this because you're in a different realm. You're in a realm where judgment doesn't come. Do you hear that? You are in a realm now where judgment never comes. So Paul says, be encouraged, Thessalonians. Be encouraged, Bowmanville. If you're a believer, you now exist in a realm where you will never, ever face the wrath of God. That's good news. That's good news. Well, Paul, after really, we would say, telling them about their character, reminding them of their character. He now becomes practical with that doctrine. He doesn't want them just to to, to think, just to have it, but now he's going to give them some instructions with what to do with it. We don't just get truth for truth's sake. We get truth and revelation so that we know how to live. And so Paul says, In light of who you are, in light of being in the sphere of life, in light that you are sons of of the day and sons of the light, this is what you need to do. And so he now calls us to to respond in proper conduct. He says, this is the conduct that you must show. And so he says in verse 6, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And so again, he says, so then. And again, he could have just said so. He could have just said then, but he puts so then together. And only Paul does this. It's unique to him. And he wants to emphasize the inseparable link between a Christian's character and their behavior. You get that? I want, he wants to emphasize the connection between the character of the believer and the behavior. In other words, your character will decide your behavior. It will t- decide your conduct. Now, And again, we say this, what a person is, okay, what a person is, decides who, how they behave. We often say that, right? People, unsaved people, we, we say this about them, right? They don't sin to become a sinner. They sin because they what? They're a sinner, right? It's who they are. And Paul says there's, an in, there's a link here between who you are, who, what your character is, what your nature is, and your conduct. So believers are of the day and what? Must act that way. That is a natural response to being in the light and in the day. So he urges them to Christian duty here. He begins with his first one and we could maybe break it into two or we can say it's positive and negative. He says, first of all, let us not sleep as others. Here the word is used metaphorically to denote indifference to spiritual realities on the part of believers. It's a different word than we used in chapter 4. Chapter 4, that word is used for physical death. It is also used uh, metaphorically for, for, for uh, death of a believer. But this word is a different word, and it has more the idea, and it's primarily used for moral or spiritual laxity or insensibility. And so Paul says, listen, first of all, I just want you to make sure that you, don't, you recognize that just because you recognize of who you are, and there's a tendency for us to say, well, we, we, we rest on God's grace. After all, I'm a child of God, I, I have that nature, nothing's gonna touch me, guess what? I can do whatever I want. Paul says, no, actually not. Because who you are will be demonstrated in how you behave. And so he says, I want you. He says, let us not sleep as others do. In other words, continually not sleeping as those others, those others. Again, that's a contrast with the you, those unbelievers who are in spiritual darkness and laxity, he says, don't be like that. Now, the fact that he says, don't be like that indicates what? The believer can be lax, right? The believer can be lax. That's why Paul said, let not sin reign in your mortal body. There is a point where the believer can take his foot off the gas and he can start to look and act like he's in the darkness. And Paul says, don't do that. Renounce that. Put that away. That's not who you are. You have to be willing to set that aside. So in light of the possibility that, 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 that you actually might, might be walking in darkness, that you are acting like those in the darkness, he gives this, pos- this positive exhortation with this strong but. In contrast... In contrast to being asleep, we are called to do a twofold response. We are called to be alert and we are called to be watchful. So he says, be alert or to be sober, we could say. Be alert is the opposite of sleep, it's really the exact opposite. And he says, this word has the idea of a constant state of vigilance. It was often a military term used of a soldier who was supposed to be on watch and he was supposed to be alert watching because there was imminent attack and he calls us to be alert it is the duty of the christian and he says in jesus said in matthew twenty-four forty-two, therefore be alert for you do not know which day your lord is coming Again, over and over, this term is used to be watchful, to be ready, to be looking for. He uses this word again in verse ten, where he says, Who died for us so that whatever we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. We will we will be alert. We are to and so we are to it and Paul is emphasizing the key responsibility of the believer. It's, it's our attitude, the attitude of, of the Christian life. In a world of fallenness, we always must be ready for the attack of the devil, for temptation, for those things that would draw us away from him. But he says, not only are we to be alert, we are called to be sober. And this really expands the duty of watching. It's not enough just to watch. The watcher must be also sober rational, self-possessed, in perfect control of all of his sentences. I mean, his sentences, which I'm not. (laughs) Senses, (laughs) all of his senses. And so the idea here is really one of self-control, where one has all of his senses, all of his life in control. And we would say it's similar to being sober from alcohol. Don't let alcohol causes your senses to be dulled and taken away. And he says, be sober, but be sober spiritually. Don't let the stupefying effects of sin and self-indulgence dull you. Don't let them intoxicate you. It be the opposite of being drunk. Abstain from sin. Abstain from those things that would cause you to be dull. Such a calm and self-possessed posture enables the believer effectively to deal with ever threats. And it will assure his readiness to meet the Lord when he comes. It could be that undue excitement about the return of the Lord could cause them to become negligent spiritually. Maybe these believers were thinking that the Lord was coming back and there was a tendency to just panic and throw up their arms in the air and run around in circles. And he says, calm down. Live a life where you are disciplined. Be self-possessed. Be watchful. But be in control of your senses. Then he says here, and we're going to skip verse 7, but we're coming back. So don't. Don't panic, we're going to get to verse 7. But since we are of the day, since we are those who are believers, we are those who are uh, of the light, let us be sober. And he repeats the command, as it were, of verse 6. Be sober, be be, self-controlled, be in control of yourself, living a life as you should. Well, how, how am I going to do that? How am I going to be sober-minded? How am I going to be self-controlled? What, what do I need to do in order for that to happen? Because it's one thing to say be, say be watchful. It's another thing to say you need to be self-controlled and in control of everything. How am I actually going to be able to do that? Because if you stop here, I think it might be just a little frustrating because it's like, well, great. How do I do that? Well, thankfully he answers the question for us here. He says this, be sober, and that's a present tense. In other words, be being sober-minded, continually being all the time sober-minded, be sober. And then he says this, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. Now, we're going back to class. Thursday night, we talked about tenses, did we not? What do you notice about this one? Having put on. It's a past tense. He said, in other words, in order for you to be sober, there's something that you're going to have to do to prepare yourself to be sober. And he says, this is something, now again, is an aorist tense. And what he's saying here is, Put it on. Put these things on and leave them on. These are not something that you're supposed to put on. You take off. Put on when you need it. Take it off. Right? Oh, don't see any danger. Hmm, put them aside. Oh, here comes danger. Put on my helmet. Put on my breastplate. He doesn't say that. He says put it on. Put it on and keep it on. So if, if I'm going to be... Sober, he says, I'm going to need to do this. I'm going to have had put these things on. This is what's necessary for soberness. I want to put on the breastplate of faith and love. So he says, first of all, there's a piece of equipment and a soldier would wear a breastplate that would cover basically from his neck to his waist and protect his vital organs. And on the inside, outside, it tended to be either steel or, or could be made out of several other types of material, but inside it tend to have a soft lining. And he says, first of all, I want you to have the breastplate of faith. So what do we mean by faith? The breastplate of faith, what does that mean? Does that mean that I have to know doctrine? Does that mean that I have to know all of the, everything the Bible teaches? Well here he says faith without the article. He doesn't say the faith, he says faith. And so he's talking here about personal faith. He says you need to have faith in God. You need to be the you need to have a a trust in him. I talked a long time without looking at my notes. <laughs> so, he says you, you want to put your, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, your trust has to be in God. This is where you're looking. This is where your trust is. And so there's a sense in which if we're going to be sober-minded, we need to first of all start with faith in God. We, ha- we, we need to trust Him. In other words, we need to put our trust, as one person said, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the person of God. You can trust his person. he consistent with his attributes. He will never deviate from his character. He will never deviate from who he, he is. He he's, he's, has perfect integrity. You can trust him. In other words, we look at the attributes of God and we say, "God is who He says He is, therefore what? I can trust him." You can trust His power. In other words, you can look and sit, look around the world and you know that he had the power to create it. He has the power to control it. There's nothing that he cannot do. No one can defeat him. No one can overwhelm him. He's in perfect control. He has the power for that. You can trust his promise. If he says something, he will do it. His pro- if he promises something, he will keep it. And if He promises you that He will come back for you, He will come back from you. And if He's rescued you, then you're not going to go through the day of the Lord and His judgment because if He says there's no wrath for you, you can believe that promise. You can trust His plan. He will unfold His plan sovereignly in His timing and you must put your trust in that. And I would say this, if we're going to, if we're going to uh, be sober, if we're going to be those who live a controlled life, a life that is, is living sensibly and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must get a glimpse of who God is. And when you know, see who He is, then you will be able to put your trust and you will follow Him. You must put your confidence in Him. Well, he says, I want you to put on this breastplate. And he says, I want you to put on this breastplate of faith. And then he says, in love. Maybe we could say this is the soft underneath part, the inside of the breastplate. What does he mean, love? He says, you need to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Well, I would say this. I think, first of all, it starts with the love of God. If you, don't, if, if you don't love God, how can you love your neighbor? Now, it has to flow out to your neighbor here. And I think there's a practical element here where we need to not just put trust in God, but it also, we should love God, love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. And then we love our neighbor as ourselves. And it is out of the overflow of the love of God that it produces in us a love for our brethren. And so he says, you need to put on faith. And because you trust God, because you recognize who he is, then there's room for you you to love him. Right? You can't love someone you don't trust. Not fully, not, not completely. And without faith, your love grows cold. So he says, faith and then love for God. And then he says this. Secondly, you are to put on the helmet of salvation. We're all familiar with the helmet, it covers the head, it protects the sides, the top, the front, the back, leaves the face exposed. And he says, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet, the hope of salvation. As a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now what does he mean by that? Thought we were already saved. Why would we have to hope for salvation? Are we, are we, are we just kind of hoping that it all works out? Well here again, we talk about Christian hope is based upon the promises and the character of God. And he says, here's your hope. When you were saved, you were justified. As you live your life, you're being sanctified, but there's going to come a time where God promised you the fullness of your salvation while you're glorified. And he says, here's your hope. The reason you're not gonna go through the day of the Lord and you're not gonna be under God's judgment is because he has what? Your hope is that he has saved you from the wrath to come, that he is going to call you unto himself. You look forward to that time when we see Christ face to face and we are with him in heaven forever. And so for the believer, one of the strongest compelling things in his life to live a life of godliness until Christ comes and to be sober-minded and to do the things that we're called to do is the hope of seeing him. And the Bible is consistent with this hope. 1 John 3.3, 3, He who has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, there's, there's the hope of seeing Him and it is the hope of future grace, the hope of our salvation being fulfilled, the hope that we will be with Him and we will not go through this that should drive the believer to what? To obedience and to be sober-minded. Why does it matter? Well, back to, the verse, back to verse 7 and 8. For those who do sleep, do the sleeping at night, and those who drink at drunk at night. In other words, we're not like that. That's not who we are. We are not called to be sleepers. We're not called to be drunk. We're not called to be spiritually stupid. We're not called to be those who will ultimately be under the judgment of God. He says, again, it's who you are. Remember who you are. The reason you, can't, you must act this way, the reason that you must ultimately put on faith and, and hope, and you must put on love is why. It's who you are. It's who you are. This is your nature. You're not of the day. You're not of those who get drunk at night. And again, I think he's just speaking in a metaphor here, but he's saying, when do people sleep at night? When do people get drunk, right? When would they get drunk at night? This is what people do. And this is way, the way people are spiritually. And he says, we're not that way. We're separated. That's not who we are. And so I want us to follow Paul's logic here. I want us to make sure that we understand where he's going. It's not thinking too much of your identity in Christ that is the problem. That it, it doesn't lead you to license. People say, well, you, th- you think about who you are in Christ, you rest on grace. The next thing you know, you're, you're, you're just living your life on God's grace and you're just doing whatever you want. But actually Paul says it's exactly the opposite. It's when you recognize who you are is when you start to live as you should. And so maybe our problem can be that we don't recognize who we are, what we've been saved to, who we've been saved by. And maybe if we were to contemplate as Paul says remember who you are, remember who you've been saved to, remember what you are now then we too would be those who live in a way that's pleasing to God and we too would be those who are watchful we would be those who are sober and we would be ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ And we recognize this is why we will never face God's judgment. And this is why we must live as those who are in the light. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we have here this morning. that we are children of the light, we are children of the day. We no longer are what we once were. And because you have changed us and saved us, we are now destined not for wrath, but for blessing and to be with you. I pray this morning that we would live lives in light of that and that we would reflect who we are in our behavior that we might be pleasing to you, and that we might hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, when we see you, I pray in your name. Amen.